everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. Sí, perfecto. Un poco, un poco menos. Um, number one, right? God is... Number one, right? It's easy. God is number one. Really straightforward. God being the priority in your lives, no other gods before him, that means he's in first place, right? And that's how you remember that is the first commandment. Number two, let's fly through this because we got a whole message we want to get to here. Number two, anybody know why number two is, uh, what number two is? Sorry, Vivi. Yes, see, she's thinking. Uh, listen. It means, <laughs> it's you shall make no idols, right? You shall not make idols. Now, the re- she was smart because she was getting uh, the illustration down. This kind of looks like a person bowing down, right? You worship, right? Uh, you're on your knees. It looks like a two in some ways. You're supposed to bow down to nothing else, right? No idols. Do not make any carved images. All right. Um, what is number three? Number three is a little trick here for you. Levi, there you go, don't take the Lord's name in vain, one way to remember that is that a three looks like a B, and what is a word that starts with B, ladies and gentlemen, blasphemy, blasphemy, now these three, keep them in mind because we're going to talk about them today, but I do want to recap these next couple with you guys, so you guys remember four, what is number four, think of the number four, we talked about this. What if I smack the number four and it flipped upside down? Just get there. Get there. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Right? The Sabbath, it's all about resting. What do you do on a chair? Right? You have a long day. You rest. You enjoy some time off. Exactly. Number five, this one is a stretch. And I think because it is a stretch, you should remember it. Honor thy mother and father. Why? Because that's the pregnant number five. Yes, let's, let's not linger on that one too long. You get it. The big belly, right, looks like a five. Uh, number six. What is number six? You shall not murder. Correct. I don't know who said that, but it is correct. You shall not murder. The way you remember that is uh, there's a saying called six feet under. That means somebody is dead. What happens when you kill somebody? They die, right? That makes sense. So again, you shall not murder, right? That is pretty, pretty blunt, but straightforward, right? So again, a way to remember number six is you shall not murder is through that um, little trick there. Number seven. This one again is a stretch, but what is number seven? Do not commit adultery again. The way we got there is because this kind of looks like the letter A, right? Number seven, just logically, I guess, looks like the letter A um, some way. If you really use your imagination, you can get there. Um, again, not one of the best ones, but helpful in some regard. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number eight, this one, you shall not steal. Why? What does this look like? It looks like two S's in a way, back to back. Two S's, or there's one of those uh, S's that I did. I, I'm sure that some of you have seen this, right? This is how I remember it. 
That looks like an eight. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, what is number nine? There we go. How was that one remembered? Because that's a microphone. Right? And what do you do in a microphone? You speak into the microphone. And what do you do when you speak a lie? Uh, you are bearing false witness, right? <laughs> That's how you remember number nine. Number ten is what? You shall not covet, right? Typically when something is ten out of what? Ten means it's really nice, something you really like. Something's really perfect. What happens is you start to compare, you start to become jealous, and you start to desire that. You covet that. That's how you remember. Ten out of ten. Do not covet. Now, again, I'm going to keep doing this so you guys remember, as silly as this is, hopefully you guys remember, even if it's just because it is incredibly silly, the Ten Commandments. Um, because they are important. Obviously, they were given thousands of years ago, but they are still applicable today. Um, they're still important and relevant for us, even this morning as we leave here, uh, in your own uh, walk with God. Um, there is still an expectation that we obey these commandments. And we talked about last week, before we kind of just jump into explaining these commandments and understanding them for what they are, the biggest thing that we had to first address is our own hearts before we really start talking about obeying anything, right? We have to understand that out of love and trust in our faith in Him, then comes obedience. Because we're not going to obey something that we don't really believe in, something we really care about. Something we don't love, or someone better yet. And God's commandments, they're not um, Him calling us to do something that is totally contrary to what He is or who He is, but instead, His law it displays fully to us who His character is, right? Who He is. And we see uh, more and more about who God is, and we get to live our lives in obedience to Him. Because he loved us first and because we love him. And out of that love then stems our obedience. You can't do it the other way around or else it will not work. If you think you're going to obey the commandments, you think you're going to do all of those things, and you're going to earn love from God or you're going to fall in love with him, if I just do this hard enough, I'm going to, I don't know, save myself. That's not how this works. Because he loved us, because we love him then, we can obey him. And with that understanding, with that approach to the commandments, then we can start to talk about what they actually mean and what they represent. So today I do want to spend some time looking at the first three on the screen there. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols, and you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. For this, we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 11. They talk about, again, uh, these verses. God is giving these commandments. Um, and he covers now here these commandments that we've just stated. One to three. He goes on to communicate more, but we're just going to cover these three this morning. Uh, this is what uh, it says. It says, I am the Lord your God. So again, clearly here, God is speaking. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage and other translations. You shall have no other gods before me. Another word for that is besides me. Um, you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them or the Lord, for the Lord your God 
I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So, we've talked about what these three commandments are, God has given them, but what do they mean? When we look at these, the question for us today is how do these commandments apply to us, right? What does God require for these commandments? Well, for the first one, he requires that we truly know and trust God as the one and true and living God. He is the only God, only one worthy of God, being God, being put in that position, number one. And the second thing is that we avoid all idolatry. And that word is important for us to understand. It's a word that, uh, believe it or not, recognize it or not, we struggle with each and every one of us. And we'll talk about what that looks like today, what that means, but we'll talk about how we can and we should worship him properly. And number three is that we treat his name with fear and reverence and that we honor his name, honor his word, honor his works. So as we get into these commandments, I, I do want to obviously start with number one. Start with the first commandment that he gives. And the first commandment, again, God says, I am to be number one in your life, essentially. That there is no other gods before me. Right? How many gods are before him? How many? None. No other gods before him. God is the priority. Number one. Right? In the pecking order of your life, the things that come with the highest significance and value and priority, he is at the top. Right? And should be, honestly, <laughs> there should be a separation between him and number two. God is number one. And for the many reasons of why that should be the case in your lives, here I think one of the biggest things that stands out, obviously, is because God is holy. Here's a, here, here's a good little caveat for you. Why do you think God is uh, calling himself to be number one in your life? Well, because he is worthy of that. As a matter of fact, he is the only thing, right, only one able to fulfill, to, to meet that standard, to meet that level of worthiness, to be put number one in your life. Nothing else should take that place because nothing else is like God. Cannot meet those expectations, your expectations. Exceed them as God goes insurmountably. God is worthy of being the priority of your life. Because when all else fails, God is perfect. He is not like you and I. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, a chapter right uh, after the verses that we've looked at, God talks about this in some regard. He says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. When we, when we see this, when we read and understand what it looks like to fear God, when we ourselves fear God, it isn't merely a shrinking in, in terror of an angry God. He's not saying that, that you should fear me, that we should be worried for our lives and, 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 and be 
afraid because there's a killer on the loose. That type of fear. That's not what he's saying. Instead, this idea here is more of an awe-filled respect. Now, with that being said, I do want to take some time this morning and just quickly uh, dedicate a moment of silence for the Cleveland Browns. Um, um, no, uh, but for real though, uh, I, I will spare you. I will spare, you know, I'll leave this on. So I will spare you. I will spare you some, uh, some heartbreak this morning. I don't want to get into it. Um, and again, this isn't just some random sports illustration for no reason again. Um, but, uh, I do want to bring them up because I want to talk about something, I guess, that pertains to what I just said there, uh, in terms of respect. Um, you know, I want to talk about a team that, unlike the Browns, is actually feared by other teams, their opponents. Um, well, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Uh, the creme de la creme, the Patriots, right? So my team. Um, now, I will admit, recently, that hasn't been the case, but... Um, in years past, um, my team, the Patriots, was definitely that team. Um, and apart from that team, it's specifically this guy here. Um, now, the reason this illustration still works is because you may not know anything about football. You may not know anything about it. All you know is that the football looks like an egg. But I'm sure everybody here in this room has heard the name Tom Brady. I can guarantee everybody has. You may not know exactly who he is, but you know that name. Well, anyways, Tom Brady, um, he is the guy when it comes to football. Perhaps the greatest player of all time. And he spent, all right, <laughs> we get it. You may not agree, but that's all right. Anyways, Tom Brady, um, the greatest, according to everybody except JB, um, he played for my team, spent years there, won several championships, yada, yada, yada. My point is this. When you see a guy like that, and he comes on the field and he lines up against you, what happens is, of course, as an opponent, as somebody that's matching up against them or going against them in anything, when that guy with that level of respect steps on the field, they, were, they, they feared him. And again, nobody's fearing Tom Brady because Tom Brady's an assassin. It's not that kind of fear. No, but they feared him because he had earned their respect. They respected him that much because they feared what his abilities were like because of what he had done already and what he could do. He earned that respect. And if, and if there's that level of respect here on earth, right, that kind of respect, we understand this awe-filled Fear. We can understand what that looks like here on earth because we see it. We experience it. But if, but if man receives that level of fear and respect, a guy who isn't perfect, Brady is amazing, but he's not perfect. If people fear him and respect him, how much more so should God receive that level of respect? A fear. Of awe. And, it, and it's so much more than that too. It's not just this awe-filled respect. Really it should be this, um, I would say this inner turmoil, this repulsion. A, a hatred or a 
um, a disgust at the idea of possibly offending such a great and loving God because of what he has done for you. That's what fearing God looks like. It means that you understand and you know him. Because when you truly know him, you understand the respect that he deserves and how holy and worthy he is. So much more so than any kind of man. Jesus, when he is speaking to um, Satan, when he's being tempted, in Matthew chapter 4, he's being tempted and he's quoting back scripture to him in verses 8 and 10 specifically. When he is tempted to avoid the cross, he's like, you don't have to do this. All you have to do to gain the world back is to bow down to me. Satan says to Jesus, Jesus rightfully replies, based on the truths that we see here that God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. And he understood that it was only right to fear and worship and serve God. And it's wrong to bow down to any God. It's wrong to bow down to Satan, anything. No matter what it promises you in return, a lot of the times we make these gods in our lives and we put these people or these things, number one, because of what it seems like we're going to be given back to us. Nothing, nothing is worth that position in our lives apart from God. Nothing, no thing, no person. Only the true living God is worthy of our worship and should be the priority of our lives. And when God says that, when he says that and he commands those people in verse 7, you shall have no other gods before, that, before me, he says that with authority. He's not some rando, he's not some crazy person, some false god that's asking or demanding to be put number one. No, when he says you shall have no other gods before me, it's because God and only God has the authority to ever say something like that. Imagine if anybody else or anything else demanded that level of priority in your life. That, that would be crazy. Of course, there are things that are important. I love my wife and she is the number one woman in my life. But I hope, the same is for both her and myself, that so much more God is number one in our lives. That he is consistent in both of our relationships, in that way, seen in that way. As much as I love her, I fail her. I'm not perfect. But you know who doesn't fail her? God, and he never will. Because he is holy. He is perfect. And only he is worthy of being number one in any of our lives. God, he has the authority to say that. And he reminds these people that he does have that authority. He doesn't just come out right out of the gate, boom, I have to be number one in your lives. No, when he speaks to them, he speaks to them and before he says any of this and any of the commands that we read about, he prefaces this by saying in verse six here, I am the Lord your God. That's how he starts. He doesn't say, hey, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, no, first, I am the Lord your God. First and foremost, let me just remind you who I am, he says. He says, let's get this straight, right? You are now free. 
I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's what he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, of, of bondage. He's reminding them who he is and what he has done for them. Before he says anything else, he's reminding them of who he is and the authority that he speaks on. Before God commands anything of man, he reminds them and he declares who he was and what he did for Israel. Now that you're free, here's how you stay free, like I said last week. Now that you've been freed from this bondage, this is how you stay in this place. First thing is first. He lays the foundation very clearly for them, very blatantly for them. He lays the foundation and he says, because of whom God was and what he did for his people, he has the right to tell us what to do. And we have an obligation to obey him. Similar to Matthew 28, when we find the Great Commission, right? That's something we've already talked about extensively here. And we know that that's our responsibility, to go out into the world. But Jesus, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but before Jesus ascends back to heaven and he tells these people, right, to go out, therefore, and make uh, disciples of many nations. Before he says any of that stuff, this is what he says. Before 19 and 20, he says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Again, very similar here. Before God, before Jesus makes this command and calls us to do anything, he reminds us again who he is. He reminds the Israelites what he has done for them and why he is saying what he is saying and why it has any validity because he is God. He's not any other person. He's not some false God that has been you know, becoming increasingly popular around the culture at that time. No, he is the one true living God, creator God. And it's with all authority and respect that he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Again, this commandment logically follows or flows from the understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. Nothing is to come before God and he is the only God we worship and serve. we look at the ancient days of Israel, right, if we look at that time, we look at that time period, uh, there was a great temptation to worship these false gods, um, gods of materialism. Right? We see it in the Bible time and time again. So, for example, one of the gods in the Bible is this god named Baal, right? And Baal was the god of worship, or better yet, sorry about that, the god of weather. He's a god of weather, but also of financial success. Right? This is one of the gods that was popular around the time. There's gods for everything, right? There's, if I'm, again, being very candid with you guys, you guys are all high schoolers, grown-ups here. There was uh, goddesses of many things, of romance. Goddesses of intimacy, right? Things like lustful desire, sex, reproduction, all these different things. There were goddesses and gods for everything. And people worshipped these things. And for us, we kind of talk about that, right? We talk about these different deities at the time. And for us, that's kind of quirky to talk about. It's kind of like um, strange for us to talk about in some regard because when we think of these different gods, we usually think of like a material version, a physical representation of those things and people bowing down to something, right? A lot of the times, these gods at the time, they would create these physical structures to worship. And, and for us, that doesn't really happen today, if we're being honest, or at least not as much. 
However, we should not be fooled into thinking that the same way that these people were tempted to worship these gods, right? That we aren't tempted to do the same today. And that the same thing still happens in our culture right now. Right? They may not look a certain way. They don't have these structures. They may not have these funny names like Baal. But people still worship these gods. These are still things that people deem as the number one priority in their lives. Baal, the god of financial success. Many, many people, that is the god of their life. That is what they strive for. Their lustful desires, that's the number one thing in their lives. Their pleasure, the things they want, stature, prestige, those are gods in people's lives. They may not have this, like I said, funny name that goes along with it, but people still make that God before the one true God. And now for clarification, when we see this first commandment, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You're like, well, Pastor Brian, can we have gods after God? No, it's not what that means. And I hinted at this before, when it says before me, that other word can be translated as besides. It means to have no other gods before the sight of the one true living God. Before me literally means to my face. God, he doesn't demand that we add him to the life we already have. It's not what God is asking. We must give him all of our lives. He is to be the exclusive object of our worship, the only object of our love and desire. He is the only thing that should be worshiped in our lives. He's the only thing worthy of worship. Failure to obey this commandment is called idolatry. And Paul, he gives a great definition of this in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served a creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, what is idolatry? It is worshiping anything that isn't God, things that are created rather than the Creator, what He made rather than He Himself. What does that mean? Anybody here a coffee drinker? Anybody like coffee? All right, I love coffee. I drink coffee all the time. I love the taste. I love how it gives me energy when I'm feeling tired. Um, I don't know what you said, but sure. Uh, anyway, man. Um, but anyways, I'm not bowing down to my coffee maker. I'm not worshiping Starbucks. I, I don't do those things. Right? It's not a a God in my life. But God's in our lives is when we worship something and we elevate it above everything else to the number one spot. When we value it above everything else. Maybe you're like me, right? And you, like everybody else in the world seemingly, have decided to go to the gym more regularly this new year because that's everybody's resolution. Everybody's number one resolution, I'm going to go to the gym this year. And then two weeks later... That, that all falls apart. But anyways, um, you know, I show up sometimes with my workout buddy and we go and I, get, I, I promise you, there are people that I see in there that are there before I show up and are there after I leave. And I'm there for a good amount of time. I'm working out with somebody else. And so it, it's a decent amount of time, but these people are, live in there. I'm not even sure they have homes. They just live in there. Um, but 
I, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I don't, <laughs> they're not even, <laughs> I can't even tell, right? If you don't see them in gym, you probably wouldn't be able to tell. But anyways, could that be a problem with their self-image? I don't know, potentially. But I know people do have a problem with their self-image. I know people obsess about the way they look. People love the way they represent themselves in front of other people. And people make that a God in their lives. They prioritize their appearance. Whether it's even the clothes they wear. They prioritize um, their physique. Their looks. Their, 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 their reputation. They make that the thing they strive for the most. Maybe it's a relationship. That other person is number one thing in your life. And that's the thing you're worshiping. It's another person. Maybe it is wealth like we talked about. Maybe it's just having things. Whatever it is. And honestly, over time, that's probably going to change in your life. Over time, you'll have different things that you're tempted to make idols in your life. It could be even a mixture of all those things. The Bible tells us to flee from idolatry. I was very clear on that. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee from idolatry. Just as God told Israel then, the same applies to us today, that we are to have no other gods before him. And from this is also another really important uh, commandment, and that's commandment number two. You shall make for yourselves no carved images, right? You shall make no idols should not bow down to them. Um, as you look at verse 8, it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The second commandment, again, it prohibits any worship to any false gods like we've been talking about, any idols, any things that you place above God it says to not do that. And that's very, very clear for us to understand so far, right? That God should be the priority in our lives. He is number one. However, it also talks about a different aspect of this verse or a different aspect of this commandment um, is that it's not just saying that we should um, not worship any false gods, but it's also calling us to worship God correctly. So let me, let me explain what that means. Um, it says don't create any images, right, that we might worship. Not just of these false gods, but also those in the likeness of anything that is in heaven above. So what this command means is that we must worship God according to who he is and not according what we want him to be. That we are not to worship false gods and we are also commanded to not worship God falsely. As we mentioned before, in that day there was a lot of, um, again, in this day as well, worship that was tied closely with images. Um, people had these physical representations and names of these different gods. Um, but these idealized images, or even images of the mind of man, are no different even, I would say, than... Um, potentially or could be 
uh, an image or a representation of God himself, of Jesus. Uh, God does not want us to depict him with any such image or replace him with any other image. We see a lot of depictions of Jesus, and, and don't hear what I'm not saying. We obviously have uh, different artistic interpretations of certain things, and those are okay. Those are fine, right? God, for example, he calls the Israelites in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 25, to make, um, to make these golden uh, cherubim to put in the Ark of the Covenant. He desires for them to do that. That's the instruction he gives. He said, you're going to make these cherubim, you're going to place them in the Ark of the Covenant. So when you're creating these images for an artistic purpose, um, again, even God commands that. And, and it's not necessarily a wrong thing, right? When you see depictions of, of Jesus, you have that, and we have that, and um, that's all right. That's not what he is saying here when you're not supposed to make any carved images or idols, not to have any other false odds. What this does forbid is, I think, explained in John 4, verse 24. It says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So essentially, the rationale behind this second commandment here is that God is spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Using images and material things as a help or a focus to worship denies God, who is spirit, and how we must worship him in spirit and truth. When we view God as an image, when he is confined to an image, we diminish who God is. If he becomes just a symbol for us, we diminish who he really is. And not to mention even that some of these images, most of the images that we have don't even look like they should, right? They don't even look like accurate depictions of what Jesus really would look like. You look at some of these depictions of Jesus, Jesus looks European. He's not European. But why does he look European? Because who painted him? The Europeans. And this hints at another problem when we create images. Because we don't just create images about these false gods, but when we create images sometimes of God, we try to depict him wrongfully, not how he is and who he is, but we create him in our image. We try to make God seem uh, to be like us. And that is a problem. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this problem. He reminds us how worthless it is to try to make God in our own image. He says in verse 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God is not made in our image. It's the other way around. Genesis 1 says that he made us in his image. He's not made, he, God is not meant to reflect us. We are made to reflect him. God is holy. He is worthy. He is perfect, not us. He is set apart and he is not like you and I at all. Following verse 8 here, and I'll quickly go over this because I do want to get to verse, um, verse 9 and so on and get to the last commandment here. But he does say something really interesting in verse 8. He says, for I am a jealous God. But what does that mean to be a jealous God? I do want to just quickly say this quote because I think it talks about this in a, 
in a, in a pretty thorough way, and he explains this. Alan Redpath, he says, God's jealousy is love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because he is selfish and wants us all for himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty to him depends our very moral life. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. Um, again, as you continue to read here, uh, you'll see different things in terms of even this generational consequence even for idolatry. The focus here, of course, is idolatry of this command. But uh, I do want to just talk about verse 9 and 10 because it does reference judgment at a national scale. Um, God says here that nations who forsake the Lord will be judged, and that punishment does have effects throughout the generations. Um, but again, let's move on from that. I don't want to linger on that too much. Um, and going to verse, uh, verse 11 here, um, and before I do that, I just want to make sure that we, ex we explain thoroughly what verses um, 6 to 10 mean, what these two commandments represent. And hopefully I can put this in a, a pretty applicable way, a practical way for you to understand. But say, for example, you believe in your heart that you are attaining some goal in your life. You're out to attain some goal, whether it is, again, prestige or a certain job or a certain relationship with the person of your dreams. You believe that this will provide you the ultimate comfort and will answer your heart's biggest desire. That will satisfy you, right? That will fulfill you. The moment you do that, in a very functional way, you look to that goal as a means to provide a deeper comfort for your life than God himself. And that becomes a God in your life. That breaks the first commandment. When you're looking at those things, you're following along with me? When you're doing that, you're breaking the first commandment. Now, here's another problem. Not just turning your goal into God, but as you move on, maybe prestige or a certain job or a person has become the object of your worship. Maybe it's not. Maybe the flip side of that is this, that you worship God, 